This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. talking kids' books here on this program. And Sally Rippon joins us monthly. She's a children's book author and illustrator, Polly and Buster, Billy B. Brown and Hey Jack are her series that you might know of, but she's written heaps of other stuff as well. And it's good to see you, Sally. Really good bit to be back. And it you've been like jet-setting since yeah. we last saw you. You've been in the States. Yeah, and visiting places that I have never been before. Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana. I had no idea what to expect. But everywhere I travel in the US, it always feels like I'm on a film set. Because <laughs> you just think how imbued that culture is from just all the films we've watched. So, yeah, it did, you know, I sat at a little bar and, like, just in cheers, you know. Kind of Were you there over election time? Midterm just election time? before, right. yeah. But I was in an area that was very clearly Republican. They made it so right. I just didn't talk politics. <laughs> best not to anyone no, I found over there. I'm a children's book author. I can steer clear of that. Yeah. <laughs> so, Sally, when when you go over there, what? How does it work? I'm intrigued. When you're getting a bus, or you're flying, or what? Are yeah. You doing? So I, I get into LA, which all sounds very glamorous, doesn't it? And then um, just lots of little flights around the country, and then I'm looked after by a host there who's just delightful and shows me around all the things that I should see, and then visit hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children in these massive schools in the middle of nowhere, and because they would only have me in one school for the day um sorry they, they would have three schools a day i had one session in each school so they'd make sure i talked to kids from prep right through to grade six and none of the kids wanted to know anything about my book they just wanted to know about spiders and crocodiles in australia <laughs> they just wanted me to speak australian that sounds <laughs> so great with that. So pretty easy gig really <laughs> that sounds so fun and so and so the idea is that you know, you're getting your publisher is introducing you to yeah, all these potential readers. And, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's lovely because the first time I went across, of course, none of the kids knew my books, but they've been there for about five years now. So it's great now to be in schools where they know my work. You know, that's that's been really lovely. And you know, kids are kids around the world. It doesn't matter if you're visiting schools in Ghana or America or um, West Papua. Um, you know, kids like great stories, and so that's been a really great thing for me to connect with. Oh, well, it's great to have you back. And um, yeah, well done. And uh, we've got um, Lisa Lambert with us from the Little Book Room and uh, Little Book Room if you don't know what is on Nicholson Street just up the road from Triple R but you've also recently just opened another bookstore Lisa. Yes we have. Over in Northcote called Neighbourhood Books so you're expanding the book empire. That, what we do well at the Little Book Room is um, a wonderful sense of community and we really wanted to share that with grown-ups as well so that was the logic behind um, our expansion yeah so you're going for, for adult adult readers as well yeah. and I mean the little book room has some adult books in there too we do yeah. a, a a small curated selection. Um, it was getting a little bit out of hand, so we began thinking about perhaps um, opening up another shop front, and we decided that uh, Westgarth Village was um, the perfect location. We've got the cinema, we've got Terra Madre, we've got the tram stop, and a beautiful, bright, open space. And yeah, it's a fabulous site. We're really, really proud to be there. Yeah, oh, good luck with that. And so today we're going to be talking books and recommendations so we may as well start with the youngest one so we've been getting children's book 
authors and illustrators in all year uh, and you read lots of these books, Lisa, and what have you chosen? We do. We have uh, story There should be a time. drum roll before we begin, I think. <laughs> 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 You're the musician. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a big ask to ask someone who's passionate about children's books to choose their top reads. I know this was really hard for you, but these are all fairly recent books, aren't they? And good recommendations for it, summer. It was an incredibly... challenging (laughs) thing to do I have chosen what I feel are my top five books Mm. today Mm -hmm. this may shift in the future Um, however um, in terms of picture books and books for young readers I'm really solid that All the Ways to Be Smart by Davina Bell and Alison Colpoise is um, the book that all families must have in their homes. If you can only buy one picture book this year... I think this is the one. Um, you better show it to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you guys could all see it. It's pretty gorgeous looking. Well. Um, we have um, amazing uh, children's book creators in Melbourne. Obviously, um, Sally is a mentor to many. Um, the The thing about this book is that it is it can easily be a child's first introduction to art it is a visual masterpiece um the pictures by Alison Colpoise stand by themselves and allow small children who are pre-literate to attend to to point to um there are dragons there are bugs (laughs) there are witches there is everything in this book. Uh, it feels a little bit um, the the aesthetics of it is a bit like books I read as a kid. Sort of yeah. the Doctor Zeus, uh, the rhyme, the even the texture of the it, production and the co- really the colours yeah. that are chosen as well. That's really interesting choices. Um, it's published by Scribble Books uh, just around the corner in Brunswick, uh, and the production and de- design values I think set. A standard for Australian picture book publishing. Um, the message is about accepting yourself and loving yourself and um, being joyful about um, your strengths. And there's something for everyone. I read this to my uh, three-year-old nephew. Well, actually, I pulled it out of my backpack and I put it on the couch next to him and I wanted his first reaction and he pointed to one of the children on the front cover and said, like me. Aww, wow. that's good. And that is the, the revolutionary power of this book. I think every child can see... Um, him or herself and I I think um, when I was chatting with Davina about it recently she was saying it's some teachers are calling it the anti-nap plan book because it's all the ways to be smart that can't be tested in nap plan yeah I was gonna say uh, I think that's a compliment yeah absolutely yeah and you've known Davina a long time so you've sort of seen her grow as an author too oh she's going gangbusters and she's just got such a breadth of work so from picture books through to um she was one of the founders of the our Australian girl series with Jane Godwin so she really understands Understands how to do middle grade, and she also has this incredibly beautiful, quirky young adult novel coming out with text um, that won was came a runner up to the text prize this year actually and so it'll be coming out in a couple mm. of years. So she's such a broad um, range of writing styles and, and ages that she writes for. Mm-hmm. And so we, we have like a whole range of different age groups we're going to go through. So junior fiction, uh, we actually had Andrew McDonald in on our um, program earlier this year. Teaching us lots of things about pigeons. I didn't <laughs> yeah. know I needed to know. All you need to know. <laughs> 
and that was yeah. quite fun, wasn't it? It was. Like yeah. learning that there's, you know, different species different of pigeon yep. and all the different personalities they might inhabit if they were superheroes. Do you look at them differently now, Dylan? Yeah, After, yeah, yeah. me too. I don't think of them as, what are they, rats of the sky or something? <laughs> I think that's what I mean. <laughs> yeah, so I've actually stolen the thunder on this one. So what's your dream? <laughs> <laughs> um, and... A, a magnificently humorous novel for younger readers called Real Pigeons Fight Crime by uh, the aforementioned Andrew MacDonald, but astonishingly beautifully illustrated by Ben Wood, who was a mentee of uh, Albert Allen. Albert Allen started The Little Book Room in 1960. Um, we sadly lost him this year, but he his legacy is long and far-reaching, and as well as uh, promoting the work of artists like Graham Bass, mm. um, he mentored a lot of emerging illustrators and it's a real thrill to see Ben Wood on the bestseller shelves in Australia. Um, their book Real Pigeons Fight Crime has just sold into America as well so we're exporting pigeon espionage. Yeah, yeah. So the idea is um, that uh, pigeons are not just rats of the sky they are um, the world's most successful spy agency. They're watching us. Um, the characterization uh, that these guys manage in this book is, is, is um, unflappable. It's the kind of book that as a parent you want to share with your children. So um, we run book clubs at the Little Book Room and when the second book arrived in this series there were squeals from the children and the parents. <laughs> <laughs> so I think when he came in, he just had the first book out, but there's been a second one out since then. Mm. So good tip for Christmas. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, and it's interesting too, um, you just made a, a comment to the side there, uh, Lisa, about uh, having to promote Graham Bass. And it's quite interesting to think that he ever needed promoting, but the, people don't come from nowhere, do they? They are sort of um, championed by people that really know what's going to resonate with children. Um, Graham says that he was on the verge of um, following a career as as a drummer in a band. He wanted he, he, should he be a musician? Should he be an a, a children's book creator? And it was a letter from Albert that really uh, gave him hope and mm. um, made him feel that he had a place in the context of of children's books. Mm. Both sound like pretty good careers. <laughs> <laughs> but he obviously Without chose the right one <laughs> um, The next one uh, Middle fiction book I'm going to talk about Is Louisiana's Way Home That's not one I'm familiar with What can you tell us about this that? This is um, by one of the finest Writers of our age uh, Across um, every audience Kate DiCamillo Who Sally and I are particularly fond of Writes um, Poetry but with a plot. <laughs> Every word has such weight. So this is a is a novel set in the 1970s. It is about a girl called Louisiana Elefante. Her her parents were acrobats. Um, they're no longer with us, and she's on a road trip with her granny. Um, it is a really entertaining story, but it is very serious. It deals with um, abandonment issues and um, finding uh, that that strength within yourself, even 
even when you were a child, we can all identify with um, not having the power to change the things that we want to change. <laughs> and Kate DiCamillo captures this in a really um, just stunning way. So she's an American author. She's not a local author, but she's yes. very she's well known for because of Winn Dixie was made into a film and mm. Tale of Despero. So she's been writing for a while, and she's been um, the a laureate, or she's yes. certainly held certain um, very prestigious positions in the US on several um, occasions. And if you have kind of a Facebook account, you should follow Kate to Camillo once a month or so. She will share a story, and it just is. A, a, so heartfelt and beautiful. It's probably how that sort of forum should be used. Mm -hmm. Substance. (laughs) Yes. But I wonder, I mean, what's your thoughts around um, boys reading this book? Because I get a strong sense that boys will read anything just like girls will. Um, But what's your sense with, with, uh, you know, people have these preconceived ideas that boys will only read about boys or certain kinds of books? Um, I think think that books for this age first of all, should be shared as well. And I think if there's a little bit of resistance um, because of a perceived uh, gender issue, that that's the way to cut through. Um, there is so much of a value in this story for people. So when you say stop. shared, you mean with an adult and a child reading together? Certainly. Right. Yeah. Do you get many of those types of questions at, at the little book room and, and bookshops you've worked in where people are asking you about tips specifically for a boy or a girl yeah that's a it's it's a really good point so um most most of the time i'll be behind the counter and somebody will romp up and say i've got an eight-year-old boy and i just put that gender thing to Mm. to the back and we go to the shelves and we look at books that are great for eight-year-olds i ask whether um a a humorous book when things are heavy in life it's really great to have a laugh Mm. um or whether this child would be prepared to suspend disbelief and move into an enchanted world um so we really try hard to uh cut through Mm. to what's behind the brief Hmm. who the child is rather than what their gender (laughs) is yes 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 and often it's educating the parents and the carers you know the kids are fine with it the kids Mm. think less of it than it's often the adult that's oh no no this is for my grandson or yeah yeah. and even the age Mm. like um all the ways to be smart is a a picture book that i've recommended for three-year-olds Um, to be read to it's um because it rhymes so beautifully you can turn it into a lullaby for a Mm. newborn baby and it's a really nourishing story for a parent to be sharing and it's a hopeful thing Mm. for the world but um i i think in primary schools it's really valuable for year six students to be exposed to so um even even age Mm. is that's a good point and as you say um, when you're talking about art that's for all ages isn't it it truly is (laughs) i was speaking with lisa lambert from the little book room and sally ripon giving you some summer read tips uh, for younger readers and teens so we've had a look at picture books junior fiction middle fiction and now we're going to kick on into the older age group so young adult as it's um, known as that sort of what above 12 yeah it's a readership rather than a genre yeah i think is an important point to make um and one of my favorite books of the year is for 14 or 12 12 plus readers um and absolutely uh 
arresting for adults as well. The title is Catching Tala Crow. It is by Amberlyn and Ezekiel Quimelina. It is um, part ghost story. It is part crime thriller. It is a form busting um 200 page um gutsy read so it's told um from two voices and one of them is in verse it is just um immediately absorbing it's so fun (laughs) (laughs) so should i know about these authors because I don't. <laughs> you should absolutely. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So um, they haven't been around that long, have they? And I think it is an interesting addition to say that um, Amberlynn and Ezekiel, as well as Sally Morgan's children, is that yes. right? So they've grown up in a very literary household, but also are writing Indigenous stories. And when I was the judge on the Crichton Award, which is a new illustrator's award, uh, Sally Morgan's first picture book was published at that stage, and oh, I was such wow. a champion for it. But it's another one. It got pipped at the at the final moment, but um, so she's been doing mainly picture books, I think, until now, and then junior books. Is this their first mm. young so adult book? So this is um, their first joint novel. Mm-hmm. They're they're from the Pilbara region of Western Australia, um, and Amberlyn is an advocate for Indigenous voices in the children's book community as well. Uh, with Rebecca Lim, she has edited a fantastic collection of short stories called um, "Meet Me at the Intersection." Um, and uh, it's it's just a, a such a valuable addition to to our, our shelves. We're really proud. Mm, fantastic. And then uh, to round it out, the graphic novels and and uh, illustrated works from uh, a little known illustrator <laughs> who people have probably never heard of before. <laughs> um, yes, no surprises here. Sean Tan's Tales from the Inner City. I just couldn't pass up sharing mm. with everybody. Um, it is a phenomenal collection of stories based around Sean's fantastic oil paintings. So I guess the collection um, is centred around this theme of uh, animals reclaiming the inner city. So the first story is about a crocodile in a boardroom who has perhaps lived there for 100,000 years. That'd go great in the US. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, Don't show um, us the book, Sean. Just tell us about the crocodile. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, and we'll be and we'll be around for a hundred thousand years in the future. That's gorgeous. It gives us Amazing. A phenomenal context. Yeah. yeah, he's actually done very well in the US. Um, obviously, because he won an Academy Award, that helps. helps. But um, I that's think right. He's massive following. Yeah, because he's just who he is. I know. And just he's been in many times. He, yeah, <laughs> he just lives around the corner. That yeah. you sort of. Um, I mean, his success and his dedication to his yeah. work is phenomenal. Really. Yeah. And the kind of the commitment to his own style. I mean, there isn't anyone else in the world that's doing what mm. he does. You know, every single book he brings out is is something completely new, something that we've never seen before. And so that's really exciting that we share the city with somebody like that. Mm. And I, uh, these books um, that I've spoken about so far um, mostly have an audience in mind. They have real respect for their readership. They bring integrity to that vision. But Sean, he has no, I, no idea of who is on the receiving end of his work. We've talked to him about his book, Cicada or Cicada, de- depending on which side of the river you live. Um, and I've, I've asked him, what does it mean? And his response is, I don't know. If I knew, I would have obeyed.
abandoned the project. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this sort of exploration mm-hmm. that's part of what he does. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for coming in. And of course, this is just five books, uh, but you've, I think you've given them all a wrap and you've explained very well why you've put them on your list today. And we'll share these on, on um, Facebook as well. We've got Thank a page you. up there that people can actually um, have a read if you didn't jot them down or put them in your phone or whatever. And if anybody hasn't read Polly and Buster Sally's Aww. book, they really, really <laughs> must. Um, courage and kindness are, are the way forward. And Aww, we thank, thank Sally for her. For <laughs> and her thank you, Sally, for um, coming in all year and bringing your favourite book people with you. I and, love it. Uh, Can you think of anything nicer? <laughs> <laughs> and I know you're a big listener to the station yes. as well. And, um, yeah, thank you so much for your support uh, thank you. over, over this year and in past years as well. And we'll catch you next year. In recent weeks, there's been quite a bit of um, discussion around population and in recent days quite a bit of pushback on the idea that Australia has a population problem. Uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison has indicated he wants the permanent migration number to come down to 130k a year from about 160 but in Sydney where the politics of this is mostly aimed there's a coalition of community business and property groups now getting together to fight the idea that that city is full uh, claiming it's the easy way out compared to doing planning and infrastructure right. But what does Associate Professor David Nichols think about this? He's with the University of Melbourne, Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning. He pops by once a month to talk things urban planning. What do you think, Dave? Are we full? No. See, is it lazy? Year, is it oh. lazy to uh, say we're full or well, have a population look, problem versus? It's a, it's, um, I mean, it's, I think it's a wonderful thing to, to discuss the ins and outs of, but it's, and particularly as you know, um, with my history hat on, it has such a long tail that that argument, which is, and it's so much, uh, uh, you know, Morrison's pronouncement last week, which was. As everybody pointed out, you know, when they, they showed on TV, maybe it was on Unsiders, might have been somewhere else, um, they showed on TV him saying it, saying exactly the opposite in February of this year, but they had to put it in black and white because, you know, that's when the past is in black and white, uh, even February 20, 2018. But, um, yeah, you know, he so he's obviously not... He doesn't believe it himself or, or, or he believes whatever he thinks will you know, shore him up a little bit in the um, forthcoming federal election. Um, It's not a massive drop that, you know, that it's, you know, a few tens of thousands drop. So it's symbolic. And it's also, it's that the the amount of um, the immigration rate is is lower than it has been for quite some time anyway this year. So it's it's already going down. Uh, But the... What what really um, stuck with me was Morrison's, you know, and I think in a way it shows absolutely what, what Morrison's, where, where he's playing, what he, who he's playing to, where he says, he said the, the buses are full, the trains are full, you can't get kids into school, that kind of stuff, which is so much a kind of, um, in, in inverted commas, man on the street kind of uh, way of looking at it. It's just like I see more people around me than ever before as, as the city, um, you know, consolidates cities in particular particularly sydney and melbourne consolidate and become denser more people around than ever before it's harder to get to work i mean i make that that complaint coming in here every month don't i that it's you're on time this morning the city's full i was on time this morning because i left half an hour earlier than usual because i thought i cannot take the stress (laughs) and as it was um we were stuck at uh, north melbourne station for an extended period of time because someone was sick um and they had to get first aid but but um yeah, so so I think it's it's really it 
you know, it's much less about any kind of science of um, migration policy or, or anything, any kind of reasoned uh, idea, and it's much more about just playing to a particular uh, sector of the of the voting public. Well, but that, that's what I was wondering, because we've seen, obviously, here in Victoria over the weekend, uh, a Labor government um, with, you know, notionally progressive policies uh, resoundingly returned to power, and some commentators have been suggesting that's kind of... Uh, you know, implies that people don't buy into this kind of, um, you know, fear-mongering, xenophobia, that sort of thing. Do you see Morrison's call to cut the migration intake as playing into that kind of scapegoating migrant communities and and blaming them for the woes of our cities, where really we haven't had sustained investment in infrastructure for a long time? Uh, Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's definitely a big part of it. And it's it's also... It's peculiar, too, in the the way that, um, you know... Morrison has his particular responsibilities, but he's not, you know, the boss of the country. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't have control over a lot of things to do with particular, um, you know, city issues. So when it comes to uh, making a difference to the two big cities in the country, Melbourne and Sydney, um, he can only usually he can only kind of, um, you know, he carrot and stick he doesn't have too much stick he has a bit of carrot he can he can throw in some kind of investment money into particular things as um many may recall the uh federal liberals uh, tried to do under tony abbott when they wanted to fund you know they said we'll fund you um dirty big um uh, tollways or roadways but we're not going to fund any railway stuff because that's um you know i mean turnbull kind of semi half almost kind of reversed that in a way but um he certainly you know wanted to be seen as mr train but still there was um that that's the that's the kind of level of involvement that the feds can have in um sort of noteworthy projects in the cities and i mean traditionally in this country federal government has uh almost always stood back from city issues that's i mean oddly enough in our nation city issues are state government issues uh, and the state governments have to make make the major decisions about that kind of thing, which is sort of odd. But since we have metropolitan primacy, since we have one huge city in each of our states, that's kind of how it's how it's played out, sort of accidentally. Yeah, and we do have the cities and population minister now federally, which is kind of a new thing. We didn't really yes. have that before. Yes, and that's 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 relatively innovative. Uh, sometimes those things, you know, they they rise to the top, and it's once again. I mean, I, I don't want to. I am cynical, but I don't want to be too cynical about that. I think that you know, in, in some ways, that is a that's a sensible response, but it's probably something that we we should have had since you know 1950. But um, it, it comes and goes. Federal interest in in city stuff, and once again, it, it comes down to uh, where the where the federal politicians see their their bread and butter. Yeah, and I mean, I, I started thinking that this is seems to be more of a Sydney thing because we saw the Premier of Sydney saying, we need a breather, we need to, you know, control how many people come to Sydney, we need a breather, mm. and that sort of a thing. Whereas um, both the opposition leader, Matthew Guy, and also Dan Andrews, through the election here, weren't saying we need a breather from, from numbers coming to Melbourne. It was more about building building more capacity and coping with the the number of people that want to come to what was it the fastest growing economy in australia yeah, you know yeah well and it, it's so a different take sorry to interrupt you, that, yeah that's fascinating because um you know it's we we have to in melbourne we have to kind of see uh see it from a few different angles and it might be inconvenient in lots of ways to be 
you know, this fast-growing city and have to deal with that kind of um, expansion. Um, presumably many of us, not all of us, but many of us are happy with the kind of prosperity that's that accompanies it or, you know, and, you know, which comes first. But um, th- those things go side by side, I guess, and that's there's a reason why people are coming to Melbourne, essentially. Um, it's it's also, but it is it is also has been fascinating to me this year, and this has been something that uh, the liberals at uh, state level were trying to push, and um, it's it's sort of talked about here and there at a federal level as well. Is great. It's great to get um, you know migration, substantial migration into Australia, just as long as they don't go to the big cities, and that. And once again, you know, uh, you'll see me putting my history hat back on. Once again, that's been um, that was that was the argument in the fifties with um, with major migration campaigns. It's like, well, let's get them out into the into the rural areas, doing the jobs that you know, snowy uh, mountains. It, it's snowy mountains, exactly. Yeah. It's a great great example. The snowy mountains um, hydro scheme, uh, getting those uh, getting these new arrivals going, doing that dirty work, and earning their you know, right to be Australian out in the... for, for spending a few years in an, a place that they're assigned to and and they have to stay there. Not easy to do that in this day and age. I don't think it was that easy to do it then. And and eventually um, migrants would, would almost always end up in the cities uh, anyway. Uh, and that is, let's face it, you know, if, you, if you're going to be an Australian... Um, then you have you have to have the rights of all the other Australians mm. that you know you can go and live where you want or you know or where you what where you can afford or where you want what what suits you best. I know that the Liberal Party was campaigning on kind of decentralisation in in Victoria and uh, working towards better developing some of our regional centres. Is that something that you think um, is kind of needed? in this case to help ease the population struggles that, that Melbourne's experiencing and I guess might experience for some time given how long it can take to build you know, major transport projects and, and that sort of thing. I'm so glad you asked, Dylan. Um, I... Um <laughs> For the for the listeners at, at home, I didn't feed Dylan that question. But it's, it's a passion of mine, and I probably Dor- Dorothy it up did. The, the Dorothy, <laughs> yes, um, it um, it is actually you know that that whole idea of um, boosting uh, regional centres uh, or creating new ones, which is a you know something that I've looked into a lot, um, partially as a history scenario. You know that the history of creating new centres, uh, um, the the future. Uh, I, I find it hard to research the future, but um, it's it's certainly something that I think a lot of politicians play. It. It's one of those. It's one of the core issues of planning. One of the core problems of planning, I think, is envisaging uh, or encouraging people to envisage what their life might be like in a new place that at present doesn't really exist, or if it does exist, it you know it's it's in a very different condition to uh, what it might become if you can get if you can encourage tens or hundreds of thousands of people to move uh, somewhere else. But you know I think one of the one of the core things that we always have to remember about our our major Australian cities is they are they large they exist largely by accident or by actually they exist by sort of random government decree that you know this this city shall be based here and and as time goes on the subsequent century or so then um you know infrastructure assembles around it but in this you know in the 21st century firstly 
be a lot easier to um, to create new places and to assemble the infrastructure around it. And also, there's a lot a lot less uh, you know tangible. Um, how can I put it? Tangible communication is that really a, is that really a term? Um, you know, there's a lot more things that we can do virtually, uh, so that you know communication is not so much a problem between places. Um, you know, we don't. I, I'm I'm guessing we don't really have time to go into all of that. But you know, in one sense, um, Melbourne is a big city, or you know, on global standards, it's not really that big a city, but it's it's, it's not a than mega city, mm. but it's five million people. I oh, know exactly. That's yeah. right, and it's it's you know it's getting to that kind of um, um, stage where it's you know it's going to have to. Well, actually, it already is at that stage where it's going to have there's going to have to be a radical rethink about how it how it operates. Um, so that's already happening in a way. And there are, you know, these ideas of, like, creating um, a la Sydney, I suppose, in its western suburbs, uh, creating second CBDs and so on. That's uh, – or second and third and fourth CBDs uh, as kind of satellites of of, this, of the city. Um, and that's kind of, uh, you know, decentralisation writ small. Well, why not write it? bigger than that and why not um, encourage people to to either you know why not send government departments to as the you know the what was it must have been the brax government sent the uh, the tac to geelong and and basically if you wanted to work there well you could commute from melbourne obviously but you uh, you might also decide to go and live there so government departments in um in different parts of the state those kinds of things, which often that's a that's a quite a common idea of uh, a way to seed a new, way that new governments can actually intervene in the where in where people choose to live. Yes. And of course, um, Barnaby Joyce famously uh, tried to do that by sending a government department to Armadale and everybody quit. But you know that was maybe an extreme example that once again was probably for political. Well, uh, so he's elected. Um, Associate Professor yeah. Dave Nichols is with us for the last time talking with us this year on the Grapevine, talking things, all things urban planning. And I wonder when it comes to that, you know, encouraging people um, to move to different places, whether, uh, you know, there's another, you know, there's multiple tacks we can take here. And one of them is to look at the planning of our cities and, and have a look at how we can grow capacity and deal with congestion because it's congestion that people seem to... Uh, that's affecting their ability to get to work or whatever. Uh, whether you know, London's done it famously did its congestion tax, which forced people onto push bikes. And are there other strategies that we should be looking at at the same time as some of these other initiatives? Yeah, uh, look, I, I mean, I think so. But it is one of those. It's it's a funny situation where the visual of Melbourne with its ridiculously wide streets and so on. It just it it feels it doesn't feel that congested. Is <laughs> no, that what you think? At certain times of the day, it definitely does. And obviously, it's really difficult to get around at certain times of the day. But there are other things that can be done, like, for instance, staggering uh, work times, things like that, which, of course, leads to a whole extra uh, set of issues, particularly for people with children who need picking up from school and stuff like that. So there's there's all kinds of issues. But, um, you know, peak hour is, the, is a major problem. And if peak hour could be in some way, you know spread out over a longer period of time, then it would be much less of an issue. So there's those kinds of things that are just policy things that, once again, you need you need 
to get people on board with those kinds of ideas and you need to have people think, you know, agreeing that it's such a problem mm. that it needs to be fixed. And once again, it's also a kind of uh, imagination thing and it's imaginative leadership as well. well that that's sort of the next question I was going to ask. Are we ready to have a kind of sophisticated deba- debate about this? Because from what I've read in the wake of Morrison calling for a cut to the migration cap, permanent migration cap, the Labor Party said, oh, no, that would hit kind of, you know, hit, would take it economically for that. But I haven't seen much of these kind of, like, ideas and um, plans for how we can better accommodate people in our cities which are rapidly expanding. Yeah, and once again, it's it's one of those... It's one of the problems that we have with democracy, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's... You have to... Um, you know, and, and I, I know that people often say that, you know, we've entered the the world the era of the soundbite and you know if you can't sum it up in half a sentence then no one's going to get on board but i think that that's always been the case in a way i mean people have always taken a very uh you know basic and um simplistic approaches particularly in this kind of thing because it feeds into a whole lot of extra stuff that uh you, a lot of people don't want to talk about or when they do start talking about it you you know, many others say, shut up, stop talking, because it, it feeds into a whole lot mm. of, um, you know, racist tropes. So um, that's that's why it's, it's such an issue. And I'm sure that that is a major part of Morrison's um, statement was basically it's, it's just going to make some people who are worried about um, a, you know, so-called influx of people from, you know, non-white people coming into Australia is going to make them, you know, slightly happier or or think that he's doing something in their interests. Um, And all those people who think that, you know, every time a new migrant enters the the country, uh, they and their children are going to, you know, lose a job. Um, That that kind of understanding is, um, you know, a major part of that. Uh, So where do you get a sophisticated debate Mm. going when, when there's a lot of people who have um you know some real um sort of knee-jerk responses to well, some maybe of those at issues. Co- maybe at coag in december that might be the place for that debate could be informed could, and could well be and that's that's it's going to be it's on the agenda right but um so we, we south shall... australia is probably saying we'll have we'll have as well, many exactly. people as we can get exactly and <laughs> south australia by the way was the one state that made a new city the city of elizabeth in you know in the northern the northern point of adelaide that to explicitly to attract industry and new migrants and it was a very successful place for a few decades uh then manufacturing went you know down the gurgler and and it's uh you know it's now it now looks like an argument against uh building new new places for uh new you know new groups to come in and uh and work and live but it's um you know, South Australia definitely was always on the front foot with a, with a lot of those kinds of things, and um, maybe should be again. It's it is uh, wow, it's a wicked problem. It's it, thorny, and it's interesting just on Morrison as well. When um, Abbott uh, not long ago called for a cut to migration for reasons of housing affordability, in essence, his argument was you know migrants are pushing housing prices up. Morrison, before he was PM, kind of rubbished that, but we see a change of heart when he's prime minister. So it just suggests that there's different politics are done a bit differently when you're. Tra- to when your your prime minister facing an election in the near future? Uh, yes, I th- I think that is absolutely true. But you know Morrison, I mean, drowning man. 
What uh, someone said to me the other day, don't worry about him, he's just the filling. Oh, totally. And I went, so many people think that we're out of time. But no. it's okay because you'll be popping up all through summer here on 3 Triple R. So people oh, will miss yes. us, but they're not going to be missing you because you're yes. going to be around. No, people will miss you. They will. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Uh, uh, yes, on the 20th of December, um, Lachlan Denton and I are going to do a special Max Headroom uh, tribute to Lachlan's brother, um, Zach, who died last month. Um, so that's that's on the 20th in the mm. Max Headroom slot. I think it's the last Max Headroom for the year. Uh, and yes, next year, um, uh, Marita Dyson and Ben Birchall and I are going to be doing a, a history-themed um, film. I think that's Tuesday nights at 7, but we haven't got a name yet. Well, we're taking uh, <laughs> taking suggestions. Nine three double eight one zero two seven. Yeah. What could you call it? Yeah, well, we haven't got a name yet, so I don't know. Obviously, I don't know. <laughs> we had some names, <laughs> and uh, and you know they um, they've been um, they've been rejected by um, mm. the powers that be. Mm. Well, keep yeah. keep thinking. Got to keep the swearing out of it. I think is the oh. th- that's the key. No, there's there was no swearing. You're allowed to use names, acronyms, just to, maybe. Just to clarify, um, yes. So, yeah, we do. So it's going to be um, local history, you know, Melbourne, I guess, maybe not entirely Melbourne, but, you know, so maybe Victorian, but uh, local history kind of stuff um, on themes. So there's going to be a theme each uh, each week. Yeah, and, wonderful. Uh, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks for all your um, hard work this year. Right. Thanks, oh, for thanks, Dave. Hard work. Yeah. Thanks for crossing yeah. town and turning <laughs> up at quarter past nine and everything. It's been oh, really 20 cool. 20 past nine. 20 past. Let's be fair. <laughs> 20 great. past for, for quarter past, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and as we ear the, the, um, near the end of the year, we thought it was time to check in and find out how we're going getting kids off Nauru and also getting adults out of offshore detention. David Burke is a lawyer with the Human Rights Law Centre and this is his bread and butter, this kind of work, and it's great to have you at Triple R. Thanks for coming in, David. Thank you for having me. And uh, last I saw, there were 17, I think now 12 children still on Nauru. Is that where we're at? Yeah, that's right. Sadly, there are still children on Nauru, children who have been there for almost six years now in what's become a kind of increasingly desperate situation for them. And so there has been calls right across the community and we know the crossbench and I think uh, Karen Phelps is going to be sitting in Parliament for the first time today on the crossbench saying that this is first order business. I'm not sure if it is first order business in Parliament today but there has been a chorus of people saying we don't want to see children there. Uh, so those numbers have come down. But what about a focus also on the families and, and single men that are in offshore detention? How, how is that playing out? Yeah, I think the the men and women who are on Nauru and Manus are in really an equally desperate situation. We work every day with men and women who are suffering from detention. The reality is that these people have been on a remote island for almost six years now, waking up every day with no real hope or certainty in their future, and it's, it's really taking its toll. I mean... Indefinite detention will crush any soul, not just the children's, and that's definitely what we're seeing. And so we're hearing with some of the, the most recent transfers, they've been ordered by the federal court, as I understand it, and the government's challenged some of those in some cases. Can you talk us through, I guess, some of the kind of legal mechanics that, that you're undergoing in the federal court at the moment and where we might end up with those cases? 
Yeah, throughout this year, uh, there's been a really large number of federal court cases brought, actually, and it's the the kind of litigation that I guess you hope never have to bring. Um, these cases are calling for urgent court orders to bring people from Nauru and Manus for urgent medical treatment, um, and they really happen at all hours of the day. Uh, I've been in court at 1am on a Saturday night because we've had a doctor tell us that a child might die with within 24 hours if they're not brought here for medical treatment and amazingly the government opposes those orders so we've seen there's been more than 45 court cases run this year that's led to the um, urgent evacuation of more than 250 people um, either through court or by threatening court which is kind of that you wouldn't something that you wouldn't expect to have to do really Mm. and so what's happened to those people who have been transferred to australia have they been allowed to stay or, or have they been sent back what's happened well i think in the short term the reality is that offshore detention is what is making these people sick it's indefinite detention year after year when you take them out of that environment they get better i mean we see these kids they're often rushed to hospital with drips in their arms where they'll spend weeks recovering but then they're released into the community they start going to school they start making friends they start becoming normal children again so they they really do recover in that sense and become part of our community but but they need certainty about what their future holds and so we've seen then a change of process then from the federal government have we because we are seeing more children medically evacuated are you seeing the same cases put up to fight these orders to bring children to australia Well, up until I'd say a few weeks ago, nearly every single child that was evacuated from Nauru and Manus was done either because of a court order or because of a threat to the government that lawyers would take them to court. We've seen that shift recently, which I think is largely because of the change in public mood. I mean, what we've seen is really a national moral awakening that's come about because people have seen the faces of these kids, they've heard the dire warnings from doctors and they've kind of understood that it's gone on for far too long. So I think that the government's had no choice but to really respond to that community sentiment. And there's also, um, as I understand, a case being brought uh, to the UN uh, Human Rights Committee on Family Reunification, 63 mothers, fathers and children who were permanently separated between Australia and indefinite offshore detention uh, on Manus and Nauru. So that's being taken to the UN. We've heard before when the UN's criticised Australia's human rights record, we haven't really taken that too seriously. Of course, we have a seat on the Human Rights Council now. Will that put Uh, extra pressure on the government do you think uh, once that case is is heard and and obviously depending on what happens afterwards will that amount to more pressure yeah well I, i think a lot of people don't really know that for the last almost six years the australian government has been routinely separating families between australia and offshore detention in nauru and manus and it's led to some some pretty horrific stories i mean we have one client where he uh, missed the car that was going to take them to the boat in Indonesia and let the rest of his family go ahead. And he ended up missing the boat and arriving just after the rest of his family. But because he came 
after the cutoff for offshore detention, his family spent six years building a life in Australia, going to school, going to university, and he's been by himself on Manus, with his only contact being through a crackly Skype connection. So what we've done is issue a UN complaint against the Australian government, the equivalent of a class action, which we think is the biggest ever against the Australian government to show that it's not just wrong, it's not just harmful, but it's illegal. And you talk about the impact of that. I think our government has spent uh, a lot of time this year investing in its place on the Human Rights Council, which is the peak body for human rights internationally, talking about how it respects human rights and it, it is a good global citizen. And I think uh, this complaint is really an effort to highlight that those words really ring hollow in a domestic environment. And should the uh, UN request the Australian government to separate these families, I think that it would have no choice but to do so. Otherwise, all of those statements that's made this year would really be exposed as a, as a flat-out lie. And you mean to, to unify them, the families? That's right, bring yeah. them from Nauru and Manus to Australia. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, it's uh, four minutes to ten and we're speaking with David Burke, he's with the Human Rights Law Centre and really catching up on offshore detention and, and the status of those people living on Manus Island and also on Nauru. And we know that there's some deals that the Australian government um, has with the US and also potentially has with New Zealand with regards to resettling people. Where do you see those arrangements at, David? Well, I think the US deal in particular when it was announced was a really welcome admission by our government that it can't just leave these people languishing in offshore detention indefinitely. But it's been two years now and only about 450 people have actually been transferred off to America. Even if that deal, which is up to 1,250 people, there's no obligation on the US to take that amount, even if that was fully complied with, it it would leave hundreds of people on both Nauru and Manus. So it's certainly not a solution for all of these people. Can can I ask also, there was um, some reports in the Australian newspaper that people that had been transferred to the US were requesting to return to Nauru. Have you, did you see those reports and is it, there, how much truth is there in, in that that uh, scenario? Uh, I, it's certainly not my experience, I can tell you that much. I mean, I'm speaking every day with the men and women in Nauru and in Manus, and they, they don't care where they go. They just mm. want to go somewhere safe. And it, it's hard to overemphasize kind of just how bad the situation is there for them. I mean, I've worked with mothers and fathers who are sleeping in shifts because they need to watch their child 24 hours a day because they're afraid that they're going to hurt themselves. So it's certainly not that these people are picking and choosing. They, they just want to be safe. It's interesting when you read into the US settlement deal and the negotiations that happened at that time, of course, under the Obama administration, between the Obama administration and the Turnbull government. I read recently that Ann Richard, uh, the former US Assistant Secretary of State uh, for Population, said the US in part was motivated to broker that deal because the conditions 
people were subjected to on Nauru and Manus were so abominable and they wanted to agree to the deal to allow people to get off those uh, detention camps as soon as possible. And there was an understanding, apparently, that Australia would accept more refugees as a result of that deal, which hasn't happened yet. So it's kind of interesting to reflect on that. Of course, the Trump administration has been, you know, come in after then and that's kind of changed the scenario slightly differently. But it's pretty damning, isn't it, that the US, people working for the US government were so concerned about the conditions of Madison Nauru that they were led to broker that deal with the Australian government. It is, and I think it really highlights just just how severe the situation is. I mean, even with the Trump administration, there was the leaked transcripts where Trump told Turnbull that he was worse than he was. It's the conditions on both Nauru and Manus and the idea of just holding people offshore indefinitely is it is that extreme on an international level as well so it's no surprise that other countries will look at that and feel like something needs to be done and it is still policy and it's bipartisan policy to continue with this uh, approach to in inverted commas border security it is, and I think that there's a real political leadership lacking around the asylum seeker issue, which is disappointing because these policies are so incredibly destructive. And that's what we see dealing with these clients. I mean, we're reading medical reports talking about the the horrific impact that being held on these islands is having on them day after day. And then you compare that to, I guess, the by partisan support for the policy it kind of doesn't connect there's a real disconnect there yeah so as we started the this conversation saying that there's two, 12 children still on Nauru are you seeing that um that the government will be able to evacuate those those final 12 children and their family before the end of the year I mean we have this kind of looming date of of 2019 coming very soon within a month or so so do you see that that will be achieved do you think I think it has to be achieved. Um, These kids are still really unwell. And what we've seen this year is that the children can deteriorate instantly within a matter of days. I mean, these children need to be evacuated now, not in weeks or months. They really need to be all taken off now, and there's no reason why they can't be. When you're speaking with with people on on Nauru, how much, um, I guess, understanding is there of of their prospects? I mean, how aware are people of the the policy settings and and the history of Australia's offshore detention regime and, and the harm that's inflicted on people? Yeah, I think the overriding sense that you get from people is is partly disbelief and a lack of understanding of what's happening, but also just, just hopelessness. I mean, I'm regularly speaking to people. I, I was speaking to a mother recently who asked me why she was there and why they'd been there for over five and a half years. And it's it's a hard question to answer because there is no good answer to that. The The answer is that it's policy for no particular reason um so i think people don't have a good clear idea of what their future holds because there's there's no plan that our government has for them and it's really incumbent upon the government to find that plan and to bring all of these people to safety it's really interesting thinking about the work that you do, David, and whether you anticipated, you know, when you were studying law and, and uh, wanting to, to enter an act for people, that you would be acting for such sick children. I can't imagine you would anticipate that. 
No, and uh, I mean, to be honest, I wouldn't have anticipated it at the start of the year, even uh, the, I guess, how dire the situation is. Uh, the court cases that we've been running are really only able to be run because we have a government actually refusing to give sick children desperately needed medical attention. And it's it's really hard work for that reason. You're dealing with mothers and fathers who are terrified that their children are going to die before their eyes. So um, it, it's not something that I expected to do in my career, but it's also not something that I would have ever expected the Australian government to do to people. And like what you were saying earlier, I mean, there seems like to some extent that maybe public opinion has shifted on this relatively recently. People have seen, uh, you know, children who uh, have been traumatised and are in very difficult, harmful situations. We have uh, a hung parliament federally now, and there are some commentators, you know, suggesting that that offshore detention really needs to end soon and probably will end soon because it's a really an indefensible thing. It doesn't even buy into the kind of fear-mongering around uh, boats returning and, and, and being an effective deterrent. Do you think it will we'll see the end of this in the near future? Uh, I do. I, I think I'm hopeful and optimistic. And I think what we've seen with the Kids Off Nauru campaign is a really good indication of that, that people are waking up to the fact that offshore detention can't continue. It, it's so incredibly damaging. It's been going on for too long. I mean, it's almost six years now that we've held people there. We also have peak bodies like the Australian Medical Association saying that it's offshore detention that is causing these harmful effects and that it's a medical emergency over there so uh, i think that there's no real alternative but for that system to end and these people to be brought to safety one way or another well um well done on the work that you've done this year david and thank you so much for coming in and having a chat with us about it on triple r and and i think us like many of our listeners will be having a look and seeing what happens with offshore detention between now and at the beginning of next year so thanks for coming in thanks for having me uh, david burke is with the human rights law center this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rr.org.au. Oh,